Okay, friends, the story begins. We are, we're back. It's been a while. We're on page 25. We're going to skip a little bit. Just to give an overview of what we're discussing today, what we're going to cover today, the next, I'm going to say 35 minutes. That's an estimate. We'll see. Um, we are going to cover the paragraph of Rabbi Yishmael, the 13 principles in which the Torah is derived from and expounded from. We're going to cover the prayer that we say right after, beseeching God to rebuild the base of Mikdash. We're going to give a brief overview over the Kaddish Dirabanan. And what we're going to learn by the end of uh, this discussion is the role of these prayers, how they affect our relationship with God or give insight into our relationship with God and actually how they get us ready for the Messianic era, how prayer itself gets us ready for the Messianic era, how it makes this world a better place. These prayers make this world a better place. Okay. There is this mysterious prayer, Rabbi Yishmael. Who's familiar with it by raise of hands? Some level of familiarity? Okay. This is what's called a brita, a brisa which is essentially like a Talmudic teaching. And it goes through 13 principles in which we derive Torah from. Let me, let me backtrack for a moment. Our say, if you read the Torah itself, just read the Chumash, there is not one mitzvah in the entire Chumash that, may, that, that is explicit or clear. Everything is cryptic. But God gave an oral explanation that went along with the Torah, giving context, right? Now, if you happen to have that tradition, perfect. But if you don't, then you got to kind of make inferences and you have to kind of derive what is the Torah trying to tell us. And that's what many of the rabbis of the Talmud have been doing is let's derive what the uh, let, where is this derived from in the Torah? How do we derive this from, right? But it's important to know, and this is so important, that the derivations or the understandings, the interpretations of a biblical verse is not arbitrary. It's not just some rabbi that decides this is a nice explanation. Let's go with it. Right. And now all of a sudden you can't turn the light on Chavez because somebody decided randomly, you know, let's go with this interpretation. Right. That feels good. It feels right. <laughs> um, it, it, it's a lot more sophisticated than that. And Rabbi Ishmael taught us that there are 13 different ways to actually make uh, biblical derivations, biblical interpretations. We're not going to go into the 13 of them in great detail. Um, you could read that in English and there's different explanations, but that's going to be beyond the scope of uh, today's discussion. But just to give you a, a give context as to why this is so necessary, the oral tradition. In the times of the temple and even beyond the times of the temple, there were a group of Jews who were considered to be heretics. They didn't believe in the oral Torah. They didn't believe that, uh, they just believed in the written Torah, but they didn't believe that there was an oral tradition that explained this. So they took everything literally. Actually commentaries explain, uh, and historical commentaries explain, I think Maimonides is one of them, that they didn't believe in any Torah. But that's gonna be too hard to, push people aren't going to go for that at least back then maybe these days they would back then they wouldn't go for that so they said okay let's just uh let's just tell people that there's 
there is a Torah, but there's no oral Torah. They thought that's more believable. And then eventually they can assist in leading everybody astray in their heretical ways. So one of these heretics came to this great sage Hillel. And he says, Hillel, I want you to teach me Torah. But only teach me the biblical written Torah. I don't want any oral explanation. I don't want any of that. I want just the raw deal. Hillel says, it does, it's impossible. <laughs> you can't study Torah without the oral explanation. You're not going to understand anything. Hello? That's what I want to learn. He says, okay, let's start with the basics. This is an olive. This is a bed. This is a gimel. Let's stop here. Come back to me tomorrow. Okay, pretty simple. I think I got this. He comes back to Hillel tomorrow, uh, the next day. Okay. Hillel says, okay, let's do the next three letters. This is an Aleph. This is a Bet. This is a Gimel. Wait a minute. You said yesterday that this is an Aleph, Bet, and Gimel. Now you're saying this is an Aleph, Bet, and Gimel. How is that possible? It should be Dalit Hefeb, right? How is that possible? He says, what's the difference? The names of the letters, the orders of the letters, it's all oral tradition anyways. You don't believe in it. Without the oral tradition of the Torah, um, which many are derived from these 13 ways, you don't even know the alphabet. You don't even know the names of the alphabet. Now, why is this relevant to prayer? Why are we saying this over here? It's an interesting thing, but why is it relevant to our connection to God? Well, it's the Torah. It's the validity of Torah, right? Um, there is actually a tradition brought in the Talmud. It says every single day you're supposed to study, you're supposed to um, divide your studies into three. A portion of biblical study of Tanakh, a portion of Mishnah, and a portion of Talmud. So we did biblical verses from the Korbanot service. We also did Mishnah. That was the portion that we actually just skipped. And now this is the portion of Talmud, right? So now you've satisfied that we're one to not get too deep in their studies. But there's actually a deeper reason why we recite this every day. And here's what the Kabbalists explain. 13 is actually a very significant number in Judaism. What is significant about uh, the number 13 besides Bar Mitzvah? What else has the number 13? 13 attributes of mercy. Yeah. Good. The 13 attributes of mercy. So the Kabbalists explain that these 13 ways of deriving Torah, of deriving Torah messages with human intellect, each one corresponds to, the one, uh, to one of the actual divine attributes of divine mercy. And again, going into each one is beyond the scope of this discussion today. Maybe if we do this a second time around in greater depth. Right? <laughs> but for example, the first one. Aww. <laughs> okay, I'll get it soon. Okay. How cute is that? What, what was that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, for example, the first one is if you look on uh, number 25, I don't have the, uh, do I have an English one here? All right, do I have an English one? Hold on. Um, Conclusion draw from a, drawn from a minor premise or more lenient condition to a major, more strict one, and vice versa. In Hebrew, it's called the kal vechomer, right? Where I say, where somebody says, if, if Rabbi Josh can reach the shelf, for sure John can reach the shelf, right? That's called the kal vechomer. 
right? If it, it's if something applies to a lenient case or to a to a certain you know to something that's less obvious, for sure it applies to something more obvious, right? I'm saying that because John, you're significantly taller. We can't tell that on the Zoom recording, but when this class was in person, that would be a good example, right? Um, that's the very first attribute of divine mercy, kindness. How the leniency generalizes into astringency. But that's an extra, extra, abstract sorry, connection. But the point is each one of these 13 principles are actually ways of how God divine, uh, reveals the divine attributes of mercy in human intellect. And there is that deep and sharp connection. And this is very relevant to prayer because ultimately prayer is about a big part of prayer is about awakening God's mercy, awakening his 13 attributes of mercy. We can just recite the 13 attributes of mercy, and we do later on the prayer, right, during the Tachrin service when there's a minion. But number one, we're not there yet, right? So we can't just recite it. It's, it's something you lead up to. But number two, there's no minion necessarily. This part can be recited without the minion. So you could connect to it in a very subtle level. In general, this is an important rule. Every part of Torah has multiple layers to it. And on a, in other words, you can understand something in Torah on a halachic level, on a practical level, in other words. You can understand it uh, as a lesson an inspiring lesson. You can understand it, um, right? There's the there's the different dimensions of Torah. You could also understand it Kabbalistically. And they're not different explanations. They're just different layers of the same thing. So on an outer layer, if you were to look at this on the surface, there's 13 ways to derive the Torah. But if you were to pry deeper, it's actually God trying to express his mercy. And this is true with everything um, in the Siddur, everything in Torah. When we look deeper into something it's actually there's something deeper taking place there's something deeper going on <clears throat> we conclude this the bottom of 25 with yihiratzon right may it be as will our lord our god god of our fathers that he rebuild the beta mikdash rebuild the holy temple the sacred temple speedily in our days and give us a portion in your torah right when when Mashiach comes, when we rebuild that Beit HaMikdash, we're not just going to study the Torah, we're not going to study the Korbanot, actually we are, but we're not just going to read about them and study about them, we're actually going to practice them. Right? The Torah is going to be something that is that God gave us as our portion where we get to actually live with it. It's not just something we learn about, it's something we actually experience. But there's another reason why we recite this verse. This final verse may be God's will that we rebuild the Beit HaMikdash. Why do we recite that before davening? Now, the premise of our discussions, I think this is our 30th something discussion on, uh, on davening, on the sinner. The premise of each of these discussions that I'm running with here is that everything in the sitter on some level is some sort of meditation, some sort of insight in how to get us closer to God, to get us to experience God on a deeper level, to experience our souls on a deeper level. What is the meditation here? 
Okay, building the Beit HaMikdash is ultimately the purpose of creation, making this world a house for God. But I want to show you something interesting. Does anybody know where this line comes from? This prayer comes from? John. Perkeavos. Good. Perkeavos. So you have Perkeavos in your sitter. So let's go to chapter five of Perkeavos. The ethical section of the Talmud. Go to, go to the Mishnah. Let's go to chapter five. Um, if I could find it, hold on. It's page 290 in your books, in your sitter. It's the 20th Mishnah. So the sitter I'm using right now is the same exact sitter as yours, but it's only Hebrew. It doesn't have a Hebrew English. So the translations might not comport uh, or aligned 100%. We obviously know which one is the better one. No, I'm <laughs> um, okay, so if you go to the 20th mission, do we have it page 290? It's toward the bottom of the page, right? We all see it, we're good? Okay. Um, go down a couple of lines where it says, he used to say, in Hebrew 2, Haya Omer, Actually, let's start from the beginning. Sorry, start from the beginning of 20. Yehuda ben Tema, Omer, Yehuda ben Tema would say, be bold as a leopard, swift as an eagle, fast as a deer, we're good so far, strong as a lion, to do or to perform your father's will in heaven. Right? And actually, this is the very one of the very first paragraphs quoted in the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, is actually quoted straight out of Perkei Avos, where it explains how we've got to be strong, we've got to be bold, we've got to be fast, not to be intimidated by other people. And then he used to say, Huaya Omer, he used to say, Az panim lagihinam, those who are bold, who are uh, chutzpah, who have chutzpah, in a negative way, who, are, who have audacity. How, how do they translate it there? The brazen. The brazen. Okay, there we go. The word, so if we want to be literal here, you know, I like literal translation sometimes. Uh, az means strong, panim means face. Those with strong faces, right? Those who have audacity, those who are brazen, the Gehinim, they go to Gehinim. They go to purgatory, right? That's the, the roadway to purgatory is paved by brazenness, right? Judaism values being what's called sniyuts, being private. Uboshet panim, having shame, or how do they translate it? What do they say? What's the opposite of brazen? Shame-faced. Shame-faced, right? Not to be ashamed of ourselves, but having having shame, right? Have you no shame? Having shame, ligan Aiden, that gets us to paradise. Okay. And then we conclude with the prayer. Yihiratzon mafanecha, may be your will, God, God of our fathers that you rebuild the Beit HaMikdash speedily in our days and give us a portion in your Torah. And commentaries wonder, again, what is the connection here? When Mashiach comes and we have the Beit HaMikdash, God's presence is going to be uh, very much perceived. <laughs> Obviously, God is everywhere, but we don't experience him. And when Mashiach comes in the Beit HaMikdash, we're going to experience him. There's not going to be any brazenness which is divisive. This is going to be humility, which is uniting. That's the connection. Now go back to our sitter over here. Go back to page, uh, what is it, 25, right? 
why are we reciting this prayer right before davening? There's mo there's there's multiple layers here. We remind are us. Pining. I was going to say to to remind us that we should enter davening with a full sense of humility. Exactly, exactly. You remember a couple of pages back before davening, we say "Hareini mekabel," I accept upon myself the mitzvah of love your fellow as yourself. And now we're going full circle. We're saying that before we start davening, we're pining for that time where we're going to or yearning for that time where there isn't going to be brazenness, which is the vice if there's going to be humility, which is uniting with the, with the Beit HaMikdash. We, we should be bitter. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and this is ultimately the whole purpose of davening is to develop our own personal Mikdash, our own personal Beit HaMikdash. But when, when the Torah commands us to build a Beit HaMikdash, a home for God, it says, make for me a Mikdash and I'll dwell in it. Commentaries point out, actually the Midrash points out, I think it's Midrash, but whatever, commentaries point out that it says, it doesn't say I'll dwell in it, it says I'll dwell in them. Because God wants to dwell in everyone. We have to have the literal way to make this, we have to have the personal way to make this, and that's what the whole purpose of, of prayer is. Uh, I'm really realizing this is very appropriate for now since we're in the nine days. Oh, for sure, for sure. Well said. This is This is so appropriate for now. Because the Beit HaMikdash, the second Beit HaMikdash, was destroyed because of baseless hatred, right? The famous story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. And the way we rectify that is through love. I was reading a, a, a talk from the Rebbe. In, uh, it was from 1991. Fascinating concept. We generally co uh, conceptualize or understand the idea of love your fellow as a means to amend the past, right? The Beit HaMikdash was destroyed because of hatred in order to amend that, we've got to love each other. The Rebbe pointed out there's something more, there's more to it. It's also anticipating the future. When Mashiach comes, like we said, the Beit HaMikdash will be here, we won't have the brazenness, there's going to be love. We want to start living with that now. We want to start living in the Mashiach times. We want to start living as if Mashiach were here, even though he's not yet. Because we have that faith that it's going to happen soon. And that's also why we love each other. It's not only a, a, an attempt to amend the past, it's anticipating the future. It's literally getting the mode. Right? It's like Shabbat. Yeah, Shabbos didn't start yet, but I'll put my Shabbos clothes on because I'm looking forward. You know, it's coming. <laughs> I'm going to start acting like it's Shabbos. I'll take in Shabbos early. I'll do whatever I can to take in Shabbos early because it's coming. I'm looking forward. The Messianic era is described by Isaiah as a time when most of the prophecies about the Messianic era are from Isaiah. Most of the, many, most of the lamentations for its destruction are from Jeremiah. That's what we read on Tisha B'Av, the book of Lamentations. It was authored by Jeremiah. But most of the prophecies about the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash, many of them, some from Ezekiel, but most of them are from Isaiah, to the point that Isaiah is actually referred to as the prophet of redemption because he anticipated much of the redemption. And he describes the Messianic era as a period in time when the whole world will be full of the knowledge of God. When we become knowledgeable about God, knowledgeable not just in the academic sense, but connect to it. We feel it. We get it. When we really get it. How am I going to be brazen? This is real. 
What am I brazen about? What am I being arrogant about? God is right here. And this is the whole goal of davening is to become more knowledgeable, to, to connect more to God internally. This segues into the Kaddish, the Rabbanan Kaddish. Before we get to the Rabbanan Kaddish, any questions, comments, thoughts? We're good? Okay. This segues into the Kaddish, the Rabbanan, the Rabbanan Kaddish, page 26. What is this Kaddish business? Okay, there's different types of Kaddish. In general, there are four types of Kaddish. There is the Kaddish de Rabbanan, a Rabbanan Kaddish. This is a Kaddish that is recited after completing a Talmudic teaching, praising God for his Torah. We just concluded a Talmudic teaching. We say Rabbanan Kaddish. And we'll discuss in a minute why we say that here. There is the half Kaddish, which is going to be recited much later. We'll talk more about that later. Can, can I ask a question about Kaddish de Rabbanan? Yes. Um, so during the first year of mourning of a, of a parent, Kaddish de Rabbanan is read by the mourner. But that sounds like it's a different context than what you were just saying. Right. A good, good question. Kaddish Rabbanan would be read by the mourner, but if there is no mourner, the, the chazan would say it. It's not exclusive to mourning. Um, it's just, we'll give that opportunity to the mourner, were there to be a mourner. Um, the half, but the, there is the mourner's Kaddish, that, that's exclusive to the mourner. There's the half Kaddish. Um, the half Kaddish is recited right before, right after the Yishtabach prayer and as well. There's the full Kaddish. After any time we complete an Amida, we're going to say the full Kaddish. And there's different Kaddishes for different reasons. But let's focus on this Kaddish, the Kaddish de Rabbana. Actually, By the way, all the Kaddishes are very similar. They just have minor variations. Mike's question sparked a question for me. So you, you just said if there's a, not a mourner present, then the Hazan, Hazan will say the Kaddish de Rabbanon. But it seems when, like when I'm in Pleasanton, there's a there's a, few, a couple of Kaddish to Rabbanon near the end of the service, but I usually don't hear it said unless there's a mourner there. Um, good question. You, yeah, I don't know. It should be said. Um, that's all I could say. <laughs> um, no, it, it should be said by the chazen or by, by somebody if there is no mourner. Um, the mourner's Kaddish would be admitted, right? Um, what is the history of Kaddish? We'll discuss soon why we recite the Kaddish here, right? The simple explanation is because we finished Talmudic teaching, let's say Kaddish. Kabbalah explains that the davening, again, the davening is a process, the sitter is a process. It's a journey. And there's different levels in this process, levels of awareness that the davening is bringing us to. And between each level, we recite a Kaddish to act as a uh, kind of like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Not a barrier, but you know, you go to the supermarket and you're like, you don't wanna, you put, you, on the conveyor belt, you put that rubber thing down. So like, you don't confuse your groceries or somebody else, right? Let's clarify the levels, right? Like a border? Vocabulary. What? Like a, a border, border, a boundary, right? An elevator. Um, I've heard of an elevator. An elevator. An elevator, right? So you have between each level, you have a Kaddish that kind of intercepts. Um, my vocabulary, as you know, as we get later into the evening and the Diet Coke level goes down, 
So what is the vocabulary? <laughs> um, okay, but what is the history of Kaddish? How far does Kaddish go back? How long ago did it exist? And why is it in Aramaic? And why is it in Aramaic, right? Kaddish was authored after uh, by the sages um, around the same time the Amida was authored by the sages, by Ezra, the scribe, and his authoritative court. It was authored after the destruction of the first temple. After the destruction of the first temple, um, again, when we mourn the destruction of the temple, as we will on Tisha B'Av, if Mashiach doesn't come, Mashiach does come, it's going to be a, a Yom Tev, we'll be making Kiddush. But when we have mourned the destruction of the temple in the past, we're not just mourning the destruction of a building. There's the spirit of the temple. The whole purpose is to house God in this world, in this physical world, right? Because the purpose is not for us to die and go to heaven. It's to bring God down to this world. That's through our mitzvahs, that's through our Torah study, that's through us being good people. But as soon as that temple is destroyed, God's presence is now concealed. And what we're showing God through the Kaddish prayer is that we're still going to recognize how great you are, even though we don't experience you. Look at the words of the Kaddish, the meaning of the Kaddish. We don't have to read the whole thing, but just take a look at the first couple of lines. Um, it, it's translated on the bottom. They put a transliteration, but on the bottom, 26. Yep. Exalted and hollow be his name throughout the world, which is created according to his will. The whole theme of Kaddish is describing how great God is. And how much we appreciate and understand his greatness. And the nuances, the big idea is we're not even experiencing him. And we're still recognizing how great he is. We're not experiencing him as we did in the times of the temple. In the times of the temple, you'd show up to the temple, you'd bring an offering. You'd feel the vibes. You'd feel the warmth. You'd feel the love. Because this is his home. But as soon as that's destroyed... We have faith. And God values that faith. Just to give, just to put this into, into context. Or it, one of the lines that we recite out loud together, the Yeheshme Rabbam of right? We recite that all together out loud. We say, Yeheshme Rabbam, may his name, great name be, Mivarach, blessed. La'olam. Forever, forever, and ever. There's a deeper explanation as well. His great name should be blessed. The Hebrew word mevarach, blessed. Again, we say never rely on translations because there's multiple meanings. The word mevarach can also mean drawn down. May his great name come down to this world. Le'olam, which means forever, could also mean to the world. We want his great name to be relevant. We want to show that God's name is relevant in this world. It's relevant in a world where no temples exist. It, it, it exists. It's relevant even in the Tri-Valley, where there is no uh, Jewish infrastructure compared to as it was in Jerusalem in the Temple era. Yet God is still relevant. He influences how we act, how we feel, our decisions, our values. God, you're still relevant. That's what the Kaddish is. And by the way, one of the reasons why mourners say Kaddish in memory of a loved one 
It doesn't talk about mourning. It doesn't talk about the deceased or anything. But we're showing the deceased, you've left descendants who recognize how great God is, even though you're in heaven and they're not. Even though they're on earth. Even though they're in a place where God is totally concealed and totally hidden. The Talmud accentuates how great reciting the Yeheshmi Rabbah is. How great internalizing the value that God is so relevant in this world is. To the extent that it says if somebody had a negative decree in heaven against them, all you have to do to get rid of it is recite Yeheshmi Rabbah with, your, with intensity, with, with kavana, with all of your might and all of your strength. The Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of the Tanya, Started the Chabad movement. He was once talking to his Hasidim. And he explained how the angels in heaven are envious of us when we say Yehishme Rabbah with passion, with fire, which is a crazy statement because think about what an angel is experiencing in heaven. Think about the love that they have for God because. There is an experience, the reverence that they have, the passion that they have. There's no doubts in heaven, right? Angels don't have doubts. They don't have decisions to make, which is a blessing and a curse, but they don't have probably more of a curse, but whatever. <laughs> they don't have that free will. Angels don't have free will because they have clarity. Yet, when we who don't have clarity and we have our doubts, we have our insecurities, we have our uh, times when we felt like we've been burnt by God even. Do I even believe in this God? Yet his name is great in this world. His name is relevant in this world. He matters. When we make him relevant, those angels are just envious of us. When the altar Rebbe taught this to the Hasidim, for, it was just a couple of lines, right? But for an entire year at the synagogue, you could hear everybody answering the Kaddish. You could hear the fire in the shul for an entire year. It goes so far to say that the Talmud actually says, one of my favorite lines in the Talmud, that when we say the Yehish Me Rabba with Kavana, the Talmud says that God regrets exile. He says, why did I put these people in exile? Why did I allow that temple to be destroyed? Why did I remove myself? perceptually from this world it's not worth it i want to be here these people recognize me in in many ways what exile has done to us was enabled us to show god that we we still uh, we still believe in you even though there's no temple we don't have to experience you to show that you're relevant I don't have to be in the mood to value you, right? That's a good value for a relationship, by the way, <laughs> your personal relationship. I might not be inspired and I still value you. And I will be inspired one day. And I know Mashiach is gonna come and God is gonna reveal himself and we're gonna experience God. But until then, I might not be inspired and I still value you. Because deep down inside, my soul knows that this is true. When God experiences that, when God hears that, the angels are envious. And this is what the Kaddish is. This is how we start our davening. 
this is the frame of mind we started diving with. Try thinking about this before davening. Try thinking about the message of the Kaddish, that God is relevant, even though we don't see him or experience him. And the angels are in the that. This is the whole purpose of creation, is to make God relevant, to bring God back, down, down, back to this world, and ultimately rebuild that Beit HaMikdash. This is the frame of mind that we open the sitter with, because the sitter is about the Jordan, <laughs> looks like your computer froze. No, he's still so. But I don't know if John heard. Uh, Josh is finished, John. <laughs>